0: North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, We'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea.
1: This is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President and Korea Chair at CSIS. We hosted the 6th ROK U.S. Strategic Forum with the Korea Foundation on November 15th. And we would like to share the recordings of the event with you in these bonus episodes of the Impossible State podcast.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Cha, for your kind introduction. It's always good to be in Washington, D.C., especially during the fall. Great town. Dr. Egan, uh, president of the Korea Foundation, and John, Dr. John Hamley, president of CSIS, also doctor and minister, uh, Yoon of Ministry of Foreign Affairs from Korean Government. Good morning, distinguished guests joining us here in person and virtually. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me here. I am very happy to make a speech here at the CSIS. I guess this is my second time doing so. The last time I was here was about four and a half years ago, years ago, serving as secretary to, the pre- secretary to the president for peace and arms control. Back in 2017 and 18, at the time, I remember I explained why the U.S. alliance should engage North Korea and we exchanged views on pressing matters relating to peace and security on the Korean peninsula. Friends and colleagues, one of the prominent features of our alliance is that we do actually evolve. The Rock us alliance was first forged as a military alliance during the Korean War. With the noble sacrifice of some 34,000 American soldiers, territory of the Republic of Korea was defended. Korean soldiers have also stood shoulder to shoulder with American soldiers in every major war led by the United States since the Korean War, joining the US in Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. We do also fight together piracy in the Middle East and in Africa and conduct peacemaking missions around the world. The values deeply embedded in our societies are important aspects of our ties. Korea has fostered the values sown by the United States in our own way. Our people have safeguarded democracy and human rights whenever a shadow was cast over them, be it in the face of colonization, dictatorship, or corruption. Korean people shed their own blood in our own streets for our own democracy and human rights throughout the modern history. Thereby, Korea has become a beacon of democracy and capitalism in East Asia. Now, we are even widening our areas of interest to other parts of the international community in order to uphold our values of democracy, multilateralism, and rule of law, and, above all, cosmopolitan culture. The win-win nature of our bonds and the mutual trust grounded in shared values lie at the heart of comprehensive and strategic partnership which we are now proud to be a part of. The ROC U.S. leaders joint statement adopted at the summit held last May between President Moon and President Joe Biden showcased how far our alliance has come. Our leaders also committed to advancing our partnership into one that encompasses not only traditional security but also the economic and cultural domains as well. Our two nations have shown the world what an alliance should look like in the 21st century, especially during these pandemic years. Dear friends, in my time serving as the first Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs for the last year also, so, I have gained even deeper sense that our alliance is no longer dominated by a single issue. You may imagine my word calendar starts from agenda relating to uh, North Korea and ends with them. To be frank with you, I don't always wake up to worrying about North Korea. But it is in fact, my schedule is always filled with meetings about and travel to other regions such as Southeast Asia, Central and South America, West Africa, Europe and the Middle East, including Iran. I have engaged with our partners and friends in these regions on issues ranging from responding to pandemic to enhancing development cooperation, protecting democratic values throughout the world. And paradoxically enough, the more I engage with non-U.S. partners, the more clearly I realize that Korea's standing in global affairs is higher than we thought, and that Korea and the United States have a vast amount of potential to expand our areas areas of cooperation even further. Our two countries, respective approaches to Indo-Pacific region are one good example. Korea, as a nation which has itself lived through the pain of losing sovereignty, going through state-led development and democratization together at the same time, and achieving highly dynamic economy, has been persistent proponent of ASEAN centrality and the ASEAN-led regional architecture. Korea has been a vocal advocate of democratic values when it comes to the current situation in Myanmar. Those citizens calling out for democracy in Yangon remind us our people in Gwangju who protested against the military regime 40 years ago. We see yesterday's Gwangju in today's Myanmar. Korea's support for people of Myanmar will be strong, persistent, and relentless. Our collaborative reach does not stay within Southeast Asian theater. For example, in Central America, Korea has long sought mutually beneficial cooperation as a bona fide partner. Korea is the only country in Asia which has free trade agreement with Central America as a group and the only Asian member of the Central America Bank for Economic Integration, CABE. We are the sixth largest donor to the Northern Triangle States, contributing around $35 million annually. Two weeks ago, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Korea invited Vice Ministers of seven Central American countries to Korea, and we had the first Korea Central American Special Roundtable to find a way forward for our partnership. Our role in Central America, for example, is gaining more significance as we help address the root cause of migration to the United States by leading to better standards of living for people and constructing social stability in this region. Our two countries, Korea and the United States, have managed to keep our approach to Iran in tune as well. As the custodian of of one of Iran's largest overseas frozen assets, Korea has actively engaged with both Washington and Tehran at the same time. I, myself, visited Iran three times this year. Let me tell you, it wasn't that exciting trip to begin with. Based on our communication with Tehran, United States, European Union, and E3 nations, our government has expressed its firm intention to render active diplomatic support for reviving the JCPOA as the keeper of the Iranian frozen funds and a verifier of the potential deal that might happen in Vietnam, hopefully soon. I reaffirm this position whenever the occasion arose to relevant parties in the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, My great friend, US Special Envoy for Iran, Dr. Rob Marley and Deputy Secretary General of the European Union, Mr. Mora, to just to name a few. Today, our alliance has significantly enhanced our global profile. Our two countries are at the very forefront in responding to new challenges. COVID 19 has illustrated that no one is safe until everybody is safe. Since the outbreak of the pandemic, Korea and the United States have helped each other when each of us was in need. We further elevated level of our cooperation by exploring ways to fundamentally tackle this global challenge through the launch of the ROC-US Global Vaccine Partnership. Our two countries are leading global climate change initiatives. On the occasion of the COP26, recently, Korea announced upgraded 2030 nationally determined contribution, which is 40% reduction of carbon production by 2030 and a plan to put a complete end to coal-fired power generation by 2050. Korea and the US remain committed to strengthening partnership in green technology, as well as making joint efforts in a range of fora, such as the OECD, as we believe in multilateralism. Dear friends, the evolving nature of our relationship is in fact only natural when it comes to think about the policy that our nations pursue. We believe that foreign policy should serve the needs and the interests of our own citizens. Foreign policy, just like any other domestic policies, must protect and increase the welfare of its citizens. And Korea is no exception. In this light, we have confidence, and I am very personally confident, that our alliance has been adapting itself to serve their pressing demands and respond to the diverse present-day challenges that our people encounter. So I believe this is a time to ask ourselves whether we are also looking at our bonds from a new angle. At times, we have viewed our alliance through the lens of the very issue that has haunted us for long, North Korea. Peace and security on the Korean Peninsula is still at the core of our alliance. And our alliance, I have to emphasize, is the linchpin of peace, security, and prosperity for Northeast Asia. So I believe we should diversify areas of our attention and see how inter-regional interactions affect evolution of our alliance since we are global partners. Policy communities. Of both our countries, including experts, scholars, and journalists who are joining this event, should update the narrative of our alliance. You are the opinion leaders, generating ideas, and affecting perspectives. What you envision for our relationship does affect how our alliance evolves. As a policymaker and a scholar myself, I say to you that we need to construct a shared conceptual reference point on our alliance and to map out its way forward. This will serve to deepen the understanding of our relationship and make discourse more policy relevant and vibrant during and after the pandemic era. I know that Korea Foundation runs an excellent next generation program with the CSIS, and I met many of them whenever they come to Korea before the pandemic and I love to do so more when they actually come to Seoul, either as position I'm taking now or as professor at Yonsei University, which I really look forward to going back to. But I hope the next generation of opinion leaders will come together and discuss matters as broad as global green energy initiatives, water management in Southeast Asia, development cooperation in Central America, piracy in the Gulf of Guinea in West Africa, and of course, Korean issues as well. I look forward to the CSIS as a key element in the US policy circles, playing a full part in such work as well. I also have another hope. I hope that Korea chair will be recognized as a position that not only examines Korea, the country itself and its very own issues, but also explores and discusses Korea's enlarged horizon of global engagement as well. Distinguished guest, I'm not done yet. I have not talked about the elephant in the room, North Korea. I know once I talk about it, what I said so far about our dynamic alliance and Korea's global engagement will just evaporate. <laughs> and media will only cover North Korea issue. I really, I am so used to experiencing that. Out of my 12 page long speeches, I spent about eight pages on our dynamic evolving nature of alliance. I bet $100 in my pocket that no one's gonna talk about it in the media. But please, we're not here, alliance is not solely about North Korea issue, but it is a very important issue. And thereby, uh, balanced perspectives on The issue itself is really important. So let me finally turn to North Korea. Two more pages. For a nation which experienced tragic war and still living in a state of incomplete peace, making sure that ordinary people go about daily lives without fear of war is fundamental responsibility of Korean government. And we, the Korean people, know from experience that peace is never a given was something that must be earned. Also, for the last five years, Korea increased its military expenditure by 7% annually. Our military expenditure accounts for 2.7% of our GDP, which is the highest among US allies. Having that in as a backdrop, the Moon Jae-in administration, in close consultation with the United States, has strived tirelessly to advance our goal of achieving denuclearization and establishment of a peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. What we have focused on is to establish an enduring structure for engagement with the DPRK. This is the exact line that I used four years ago in this building. As a member of the security team of the Moon Jae-in administration from the summer of 2017, I can say that we have never fantasized about the peace process. The peace process could likely be long, arduous, and even tortuous. On the way, North Korea might be tempted to look back and doubt or hesitate to stay the course. In this vein, we need a framework that can keep Pyongyang on track. It is imperative to devise a structure from which no one can easily walk away from the whole process. By presenting North Korea with a clear picture of what can gain or lose through the process, we may be able to convince them that their best bet is to stick to the process. In 2018, there was a sense of fresh hope that we could establish such a framework and push the peace process forward. We created a structure where inter-Korean relations and USDPRK relations proved to be mutually reinforcing creating a virtual cycle, but you know what happened. I know that we still have a long way to go, but we never give up. We do never give up. ROC U.S. Summit in May laid a strong diplomatic foundation to make progress again on this ongoing task, which is fundamental responsibility of the Republic of Korean government and also U.S. government at the same time. Our two leaders agreed to the importance of picking up where we are left off and building on what we have brought about through previous agreement with North Korea, such as Singapore Joint Statement and 2018 Panmunjom declarations. Also, the September 19 Comprehensive Military Agreement, known as CMA, is another advancement reached in 2018. This inter-Korean military agreement has greatly reduced the likelihood of incidental military skirmishes and clashes between the South and the North in the DMZ, This, in turn, has provided space for both of us to concentrate on the denuclearization dialogue, which is a bigger talk and highly sensitive process that can be undermined by even minor military crashes in the DMZ, in the Korean Peninsula. Moreover, the agreement has set a meaningful precedent for future talks with Pyongyang. During the negotiation with North Korean military, I learned a priceless lesson. We can come to an agreement, even in a short time, if we can secure both the political will of the leaders and the working level negotiations that fill in details. An optimal combination of top-down and bottom approaches, I believe. In an effort to revive the dialogue with DPRK, President Moon Jae-in once again proposed an end-of-war declaration at the 76th UN General Assembly. By putting an end to the Korean War, our government intends to commence the process of making irreversible progress in denuclearization and turning the abnormally long armistice into a peace regime. Long, long way to go. But think about it. Really, do think about it. Who can propose such a bold initiative other than the Republic of Korea? And which country is more qualified to do so? The peace regime will comprise a set of norms and principles that would define the future of the Korean Peninsula, including those regulating the inter-Korean political relationship, military confidence-building measures, and economic and social exchanges. The End of War Declaration would mark a meaningful entry point to point for two Koreas and United States to shape this new order by opening up a venue for Denuclearization dialogue and the peace talks. Above all, it is morally right thing to put an end to the war and to begin the peace process. So, friends and colleagues, so far I have outlined a new chapter of our alliance that our two countries are opening together. Also, briefly touched upon, briefly touched upon North Korea and the end of war declaration. Hope that you will find it very useful. And this morning, I woke up only because of the jet lag, 3 a.m. You know how sentimental you become, 3 a.m., you know, especially in Washington, D.C., ahead of this big meeting. So I jot down a couple of points. This is purely my personal point. These people, first time listening to, you know. Before I just conclude uh, my speech, I just want to share my personal realization and personal touch. Having gone through uh, the peace process, 17 and 2018, and also, you know, my background as a scholar, and and I will be going back to my original job at Yonsei University. I always think about this, who else argument? Korea, we go through a lot of difficulties, challenges, living next door to, you know, a rising power. But I come to think of this term, who else? In other words, every time we come to face difficulties, obstacles, and hurdles, it is our friends in the United States consulting with us, giving advices, and exchanging views, and sometimes debating very harshly behind the doors. But who else can we do that with? That's what I realized. United States, people say the only, ally, only treaty ally of the Republic of Korea. Yeah, this, it is true. But I think it's beyond that. Sort of who else argument? You know, whenever we have a problem especially during this pandemic, who else did we talk to? We didn't go to Beijing, we didn't go to Tokyo, we didn't go to elsewhere. We went to and came to Washington DC. I think that speaks to a lot of facts, a lot of uh, traditions, a lot of uh, uh, reality that we have. I think that we have a very strong epistemic community between Seoul and Washington and Korea and uh, the United States as a whole. I really do hope that this gets really expanded, this gets really uh, evolved as I just spoke about how on global stage, the Republic of Korea is doing our own parts, tackling global agendas and also tackling, resolving peace problem on the Korean Peninsula. So with that, I wish you could explore further how our alliance can go much forward through this constructive dialogue. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Vice Foreign Minister. That was a wonderful set of remarks and also very personal in many ways, and we're very grateful that you would share that with us and that you take the time. Again, I know that your schedule is very busy, and we did want to set aside um, at least a little bit of time for questions. Anyone here, if you'd like to ask a question, there is a mic over here on the far end of the stage, and we'd be happy to take, uh, I don't don't know how many we can take, but if you could uh, just line up there. And while folks are thinking about their questions, Vice Foreign Minister, if I could ask you you know, I agree with you that, <laughs> that your tour de force with regard to the alliance is both important and well-deserved. I mean, your administration has done an incredible job of reestablishing and expanding the importance of the U.S.-Korea alliance for both countries and for the world. But you're right, the press will focus on just what you said on North Korea. But my question isn't about North Korea, even though that takes up a lot of our time in the headlines. The bigger and broader question for the alliance is China. And there, I guess I wanted to just get your views on how, in your mind, Korea navigates this new environment in which there is a lot more competition between the U.S. and China than Korea arguably has been used to. And um, from your perspective, again, as one of the people in the South Korean government that has to conceptualize and think about Korea's path, if you could offer some thoughts on that, that would be great.
2: Yeah, uh, I did not say anything directly about China in my speech, uh, reasonably because we have a good working relationship with governments in Beijing. They're our strategic partners. And just as I said in my speech, just like any other domestic policies, foreign policy also should serve the needs and interests of Korean citizens, namely middle income class. The trade volume of Korea, China is larger than our trade volume with United States and Japan put together. And we make money out of it. We make big surplus out of it. And who, who enjoys that surplus down in the market? Our citizens, ranging from the small to medium uh, entrepreneurs to big you know, conglomerates. We cannot ignore that. At the same time, we are also worried about uh, supply chain resilience, meaning that over-dependence on you know, many parts and components from, coming from China. And that is not only our problem also. That is also a problem for, I guess, everybody, as we all are getting much more interdependent or otherwise dependent on Chinese. So uh, we realized issues are there and coming up, but at the same time, seeing interaction between Beijing and Washington, as it gets more competitive, then we get really high tension within our foreign policy communities. And because, first of all, our arrays of question is something like this. What, what kinds of impact will it have on our exporters, our, our market actors? What kinds of uh, strategic constraint it will have on our uh, foreign policy arrays? And what kinds of impact will have on our Korean peninsula as a whole. But as I mentioned, our government is trying to be make peace on the Korean Peninsula and create a structure. We cannot do it without obviously support and backup and consent and consultation from our friends in Washington. But also, realistically speaking, we also need partnership from Beijing as well. That's a strategic uh, theater that we belong to, whether we like it or not, that's the reality of our policy as well. So what we are trying to be is that we're trying to be really uh, uh, having forming a good working relationship with China. After all, we are, we are the country that lives right next door to. And at the same time, we try to diversify our market shares. In other words, our very strong, aggressive approach to our friends in Southeast Asia under the name of New Southern Policies our engaging with our European partners. We are the only country that has free trade agreement with the European Union market, America, and at the same time China. So we want to become so-called porous nation in trading states. After all, we have many identities as a nation, but most of all, we are enjoying our trading nation identity as well. So we're trying to really pragmatic about it. I also want to toss a rhetorical question. Something that we can also think about. For the interest of the United States, which one is better, South Korea having a really bad relationship with China or South Korea having good working relationship with China? Which one would be good for the interest of the United States? I don't have a clear answer, something that really uh, arising in my mind these days. And that's my answer, I guess.
1: Thank you very much, Vice Foreign Minister. For that response, I mean, Korea does really have one of the most complex relationships with China of all U.S. allies and partners. Again, I know you have to go, but if you'd allow me to ask just one other question. <laughs> <laughs> if you could ask me just one answer just one other question. And it is about uh, it is about North Korea. There's a lot of attention now and talk and debate and discussion here in Washington about the end of war declaration. And one of the questions that I often get, which I don't have an answer to, so maybe you can answer it, is the U.S. and uh, the Republic of Korea are working very hard on thinking about this, but in these discussions, is there any sense that there is actually going to be a a positive reception from the North with regard to this framework, this broader framework that you you proposed in your speech for for a peace process on the peninsula and denuclearization?
2: Um I mean, hard to predict, but I mean, think about what happened back in 2017 and compare that with 2018. You know, back in 2017, every weekend especially, North Korea fired a lot of missiles, and I was in the Situation Room in the Blue House, and I was really mad with the fact that they especially fired on Friday night. And then 29th of November, with the uh, lofted launch of uh, uh, ICBM, they suddenly declared they complete everything. And then we move into a so-called peace, a winter Olympic season, transforming the whole nature. And we had a really highway ride in 2018. And sometimes it went really fast. And then we had Hanoi. I know I can say because on that day when uh, Hanoi summit crumbled, a lot of people drank a lot of soju in Seoul. And I'm not, I am one of them, to be honest with you. I know this is on live and I can't say something like this, but after all, I'm a professor. <laughs> but we never gave up, though. Second of all, we never thought that North Korea is an easy partner. But we saw a glimpse of possibility with a very uh, strong partnership between Washington and Seoul without any daylight. We, we could have we pushed a little bit harder on engagement, and we could have crossed the threshold, but we couldn't. Maybe because of a lot of reasons, but I'm not going to linger on the reason. What I'm telling you is that with a very strong coordination and cooperation between two allies, I think we could uh, uh, push and begin anew and open the door and bring North Korea into this as I say, long, arduous and torturous process that nobody can walk away. And I believe that the End of War Declaration is a good ticket to the uh, peace process as well. My government, Moon Jae-in government, as you all know, has about six months in power. We do not aim to achieve everything at once. We do not push this in any hurry. As I told you and told to our friends here, we want to create a structure and roadmap so that we can update, adapting to different uh, circumstances and, and, and environments. And we believe that End of Declaration is, is one good example. As uh, my capacity as a presidential secretary for peace planning, my, one of my job portfolio was monitoring sanction regime. And uh, I can surely tell you that we have very fierce sanction implementation. I cannot say in any detail, but other other than any other nation in our theater, we are actually doer, implementer of the sanction. The sanction is still there, but also we need to give an idea about how creative we can be in sustaining this process when it actually begins. Because at the end of the day, this essentially semantic uh, analogy, it's like uh, standing in the Very shallow river, but with a very high, uh, uh, high, uh, what you may call it, streams. Unless you go against the tide, you will just fall back. In other words, there is no status quo when you deal with North Korea. Either you have to engage and try to create a structure to bring out North Korea into, out of, I guess, dungeon. And I don't have the exact answers. We've tried it. We never give up. And my president a very bold initiative to put, on, put out uh, this his, what he believes is a very viable option and go from there. So it's a very doable. And whether North Korea take it or not, uh, we will have to wait and see. I can speak for North Korea at this juncture in the public.
1: Thank you. That's actually a very interesting expression. There's no status quo on North Korea. That's actually a very interesting way to think of it. Um, uh, we're out of time. I, I, I would like to, uh, first of all, thank you for your service and for all that you've done to, um, for uh, the Republic of Korea and for the Alliance. Um, you mentioned several times in your talk that you're looking forward to going back to being a professor at Yonsei. What, 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 what will you look forward to the most when you return to campus?
2: Summer vacation and <laughs> <a> vacation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm round of applause for the vice Prime <laughs> Minister.
0: If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there, too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is The Impossible State.